All right, welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and uh, Revealed Apologetics is an apologetics YouTube channel where we emphasize the importance of apologetics, typically from a presuppositional uh, perspective, but um, we have quite uh, a variety uh, typically going on with regards to um, interviews and, and folks that we have on um, throughout the show. And so today, um, I'm very excited to have um, our guest on today because we're going to be covering a very, very important topic, okay? Um, and this is going to be very much centered around Reformation theology, Protestant theology, and it's a very important and vital topic that hopefully Dr. Uh, Tony Costa can um, kind of unpack for us. And um, hopefully, in the midst of unpacking, if you guys have noticed the, uh, the title here, In Defense of the Five Solas of the Reformation, um, perhaps we can try and make some apologetic application. I right? would be very careful that when we think in terms of apologetics, we, we typically um, think in terms of like Christian versus atheist, right? But that's not necessarily the case. Um, we are called to defend the faith against um, all forms of error in whatever uh, shape and form it, it manifests. And that includes being able to defend um, Christian doctrine, which includes some of the things that we're going to be talking about today. So hopefully we can make some of that, uh, some uh, application with regards to um, to that. Okay, well, um, I do apologize. We had some um, technical difficulties. We had some audio difficulties. So I had to switch from my super nice camera to my, my iPad, but we'll make it work. Um, and so uh, that was why we were just running a little bit late. But um, let me introduce um, our guest. I'm going to read his, his bio, if, if he doesn't mind, so people can kind of uh, know who you are. Tony Costa um, is, uh, is a, um, well, he's a reformed Christian. Am I correct in saying yes. that? I've, I've actually seen you speak, uh, in, in when you were out in Long Island, um, yeah. I know you're, we have a, a common acquaintance in, um, uh, Chris Arnzen, who is the, uh, the host of Iron Sharpens Iron radio show. Uh, but Tony Costa is, is the real deal. I've enjoyed greatly, uh, hearing his talks and, um, his, uh, his books that he's uh, written, which we're going to go through some of those as well. But uh, Tony Costa, a little background, has uh, earned his BA and his MA in the study of religion, biblical studies, and philosophy from the University of Toronto. Tony received his PhD in the area of theology and New Testament studies from uh, Radbode. Is that how I say it? Yeah, Radbode. Radbode University in the Netherlands. He's a member of the Society of Biblical Literature, the Evangelical Theological Society, and the Evangelical Philosophical Society. His area of expertise is biblical and systematic theology, cults, the New Age Movement, and Comparative World Religions with a specialization in Islam. Tony is also an ordained minister of the gospel. As a Christian apologist, Dr. Costa gives reasons for the valid belief in Christianity and also advocates the unique claims of Jesus Christ. He, is also, he also lectures and debates at various universities and colleges on the existence of God, as well as the credibility of the Christian faith. Tony is a professor of apologetics with the Toronto Baptist Seminary, he also teaches as an instructor with the School of Continuing Studies at the University of Toronto in the area of New Testament studies. He serves as an adjunct professor with Heritage College and Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario, and Providence Theological Seminary in Franklin, Tennessee. He has lectured and ministered throughout Canada, the United States, and overseas. He's the author of Worship and the Risen Jesus and the Pauline Letters, and the forthcoming book, Earliest Christian Creeds and Hymns, What the Earliest Christians Believed in Word and Song, uh, with H&E Publishing. He's also a contributor of scholarly essays in Christian origin and Greco-Roman culture and Christian origins and Hellenistic Judaism and various journals. Tony is happily married to a wonderful wife, Vita. Yes. Okay, Vita. Correct. Has three children and a grandson and resides in Toronto, Canada. So 
a lot of stuff there to unpack. You are quite a seasoned uh, theologian, apologist with a lot of experience under your belt. And I think that's very important um, so that when we go through our topic today, folks know that uh, we're getting um, some reliable information from someone who's actually been in the thick of defending the gospel. And I think that's very important. So um, why don't you say hi to folks uh, for a few moments there and we'll kind of uh, begin our, our line of questioning as, <clears throat> you know, as we sure. you for some, uh, s some knowledge on the five solos. Sure, sure. Well, first of all, uh, thank you again, Eli, for having me on your uh, program. And notwithstanding the uh, technical difficulties that we had, uh, we, we serve a sovereign God and we know nothing happens uh, without a purpose. So even in this, God has his purposes. And uh, so I'm just glad to be on, and I appreciate the fact that you want to address the five solos of the Reformation as we head towards the end of October, as you know, while the world is thinking about uh, Halloween and scary cats and ghosts and witches and so forth, uh, we tend to forget that October 31st, 1517 is believed to be the date when uh, Martin Luther uh, nailed the 95 Theses to the, to the church in Wittenberg in Germany. Uh, and thereby uh, eventually uh, starting off what we call historically the Protestant Reformation. Uh, now, again, that's not to say we need to be careful that uh, church history doesn't begin with Luther. Uh, a lot of evangelicals think that uh, it's Luther onwards. Well, there was a, we stand on the shoulder of giants and there was a Reformation prior to Luther, not as large. Uh, we, we have people like Jan Hus in Bohemia uh, in the 15th century, and of course, John Wycliffe in, in England uh, in the 14th century, and of course, William Tyndale, uh, who's actually, his anniversary of his martyrdom was just last week, uh, who died uh, translating the Bible into the language of the common people. Uh, and so we must not forget uh, that God has been, there's a saying amongst the Protestants, as you probably know, Eli, and that is semper reformanda, the church is always reforming. Right. And so the Reformation has been ongoing and it is still ongoing. Hmm. Very good. Now, um, I, I'm glad you mentioned that church history doesn't begin with Martin Luther, right? Um, I think uh, within an apologetics context, and I've also I've often heard uh, Dr. James White often say in various contexts that uh, one of the weakest areas for the average Christian is um, especially with regards to apologetics and their ability to defend the faith is uh, knowledge of the original languages, which is understandably so not every, you know, not the average Christian doesn't, uh, you know, run off to seminary and learn ancient languages. Right. Um, uh, but church history. Yes. And um, I think um, there is a danger there. Well, why don't you actually, before we get into so the, the five solas and explain that, why don't you explain for us, why is it so important for Christians today to understand church history prior to the Reformation. Right. Well, because uh, church history, uh, right from the beginning of the Christian church in about 33 AD, AD 33, with mm -hmm. the resurrection, the Pentecost, um, we need to know that that Christ has led his church and that following the, the death of the last apostle, which we believe was John, there were what's called the Apostolic Fathers. And so we had people like Ignatius of Antioch, we had Polycarp, and we had uh, Papias, very important figures. And what we see is a testament to the, the sovereignty of God, how God has kept his church and how he has preserved the truth of the gospel. Now, that's not to say that there aren't, uh, the church fathers are not infallible. And this is where we part ways with Rome, with the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Eastern Church. And that is that the, the, the fathers of the church, great men that they were, were not infallible. They never claimed to be infallible. In fact, they always spoke of the scriptures as God inspired. 
And so we need to understand that. And, and again, our, our, our good friend James White has made this claim many, many times. We need to stop making the church fathers uh, reform Baptists or turn them into Presbyterians or the Roman church does the same thing. They claim they're all Roman Catholic. The Orthodox church claims they're all Greek Orthodox. Let the church fathers be the church fathers. Did they have some weird ideas? Well, yeah, they did. I mean, Irenaeus thought Jesus was 50 years old when he died. Um, but again, these are not inspired writers, but they are theological giants that we can learn from. They defended uh, biblical doctrines against heretics like the Gnostics who denied the real humanity of Jesus. They fought against the Arians uh, in the fourth century. Uh, Athanasius, the great defender of orthodoxy, stood up against Contramundum, Athanasius Contramundum, against the world as the whole world was going towards Arian doctrine that Christ was a creature, that he was not truly God, truly man. Athanasius took a stand. Uh, and then, of course, after Athanasius, we we see the great Augustine in the West, uh, Augustine, the great doctor of called uh, the Doctor Gracia, the doctor of grace, uh, who became very pivotal and very influential. The reformers claimed him as their own. Luther and, and Calvin both said Augustine was all theirs. Uh, and, and so we need to understand that with the development of the church, we learn from heresies that the, the, the modern day cults we see today are really uh, recycling of these ancient heresies. So Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons teach Arianism, uh, Gnosticism has been uh, resurrected through uh, the cult known as Christian Science, uh, Unity School of Christianity, New Age Movement. Uh, so a lot of the heresies that the early church faced is what we see today. We see also the, the blunders of, of church history. We see the, the rise of the Bishop of Rome claiming supremacy over all the other bishops. And then this leads to the papacy, the rise of the papacy. And then you have the, the, the rise of the, the, the Roman Catholic Church claiming absolute inerrance, uh, infallibility, and that, and that the, the Bishop of Rome is the true father of all Christians and so forth. And so we, we look at church history and to understand how we got where we are today, we need to understand the past. So, so take, take, for example, the Islamic invasions. The, as, as Islam began to spread across the West and was threatening uh, Western Europe, um, was it, were it not for the Crusades, uh, there would not have been a Reformation. Germany would have been Islamicized. France would have been Islamicized. Mm -hmm. England would have been Islamicized. And so it's really important to understand that a lot of the struggles we're having today in, in terms of church uh, politics or theology they're not new. They've been they've been debated in the past, sure. uh, and and we also see that the the ugly head of, for example, Pelagianism, the idea that we cooperate with God's grace uh, to be saved, and we need to go back to Augustine, who opposed that vehemently, opposed that. Um, so church history is so important, and, and that's why I, I'm really proud of the fact that my seminary, Toronto Baptist Seminary, we we make it uh, a, a part of the curriculum to teach church history. Uh, and so we have some really good scholars that teach uh, church history, uh, and it is really, really a must. So church history, apologetics, languages, yeah, they, yeah. The, those are the three chords that we really need to strengthen ourselves with. Very good. Uh, you said something about the Crusades there. Uh, you said that if it hadn't been for the Crusades, then Germany would have been Islamicized. Uh, that's yes. interesting because the Crusades is almost always referred to as something completely negative in every yes. way. It's like, well, look at the crusade. It's yeah. like, well, yeah, yeah, there were some negative aspects. Yeah, but, but what they never tell you though is this, and classical historians have 
have already come out with their complaints on this. And you may have watched the Kingdom of Heaven, that Hollywood production, yes. Kingdom oh, of Heaven, know. which was a terrible uh, description of the Crusades. Okay. Uh, the Crusades are seen as marauding Christians who yes. just care about pillaging and raping and so forth. When, as a matter of fact, the Crusades were not called until 400 years after the Islamic expansions. Mm. And what prompted the Crusades was a defensive move to basically protect Western Europe from the, the Islamic hordes. And, uh, and as I said, if it was not for Charles Martel, Charles the Hammer, to push back the, the Muslims uh, out of Europe, we know that they took over Spain and Portugal during the Andalusian uh, period. Uh, was it not for the, the Crusades, um, all of Europe would have been Islamicized, just mm. like North Africa has been Islamicized. The yeah. Middle East, which were bastions of Christianity, have been Islamicized. So um, the Crusades was not a was not this idea of, of the Western Church to just take over the Holy Land. They were going to the Holy Land because Muslims were destroying uh, Christian sites and, and holy sites like the Church of the, the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, and these things are barely mentioned today because the media, everything in the media today, predominantly the left, is all about uh, hatred for two things, Christianity and Western civilization. Okay. So everything is blamed on the, 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 the West, on the slave trade is the, is the fault of the West, the, the, the Crusades, uh, everything is blamed on the West. And so never mind that Islam colonized North Africa, that they Islamicized the Middle East, never mind slavery still goes on today in Islam. Whereas Abraham Lincoln abolished it in the U.S. and Wilberforce abolished it in England, so so what you find, Eli, is that and you see it right now, being in the United States, there's there's this leftist agenda to basically demonize uh, the founding fathers, to demonize the Constitution, to demonize and self-loathe uh, American history, mm. uh, and we have the same thing here in Canada with a leftist prime minister that we have, um, and yet it was the West that abolished slavery. Uh, and it still continues today in West Africa. It still continues in Islam, Islamic countries. And the West doesn't say boo about it because they don't care. All they care about is dismantling Western civilization. And what has kept Western civilization going is Christianity. And that's why they tear down Christianity, attack churches, uh, demonize pastors. Um, never mind what Islam says about LGBTQ. Uh, mm -hmm. but, but let's attack pastors for, for not baking a cake uh, for uh, our gay wedding and so forth. So, so what we have here, Eli, is that there's there's a lot of revisionist history going on, and and the whole the whole idea is to destabilize the West. Mm. Enough there to have a completely separate episode. I, uh, exactly. <laughs> I think I think we should because I've I'm, I, I I'm actually have you back on. To talk yeah, about I mean, I'm actually. I'm actually teaching this week uh, with the African Christian University, okay, uh, Conrad Mabui's church uh, in Zambia, okay. and so I, I'm doing some teaching on this very subject of social justice with them. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's 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 the, the students are really excited about this because it's yeah. mainly a Western phenomenon. Okay, now I'm going to put you on the spot for two seconds because I didn't sure. mention this because we were we didn't get we got kind of to a rocky start. But the way we do sure. things on on the show is towards the tail end. Uh, the guest usually takes live questions if they're okay with Sure, so absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So, so there are some comments that some people are already kind of taking issue with maybe a thing or two that you said, and maybe they sure. can kind of formulate that into a question. Sure. You could address it towards the end. Sure. Okay. Sure. Um, but just to let people know, uh, we, uh, Dr. Costa will be taking uh, questions. Um, you could send those questions uh, maybe 
put like question in parentheses so that I can differentiate them from a bunch of the comments that usually go on in the comment section. Um, and of course, if you want your question uh, read uh, first, um, you can send in a super chat and I'll be sure to take note of that and um, ask your question first. All right. So without further ado, let's jump right into our topic. And I'm glad we talked a little bit about church history because I want to return there because I think um, understanding church history along with how the five solas came about, I think is a very important connection for Christians to make. So we'll, we'll return there. But why don't you define for us what, this, what the five solas are? What are they? Listing mm-hmm. them and kind of go into an explanation as to what each each one of them means. And then we'll kind of sure. take it from there. Sure. So the five solas is basically the, the, the battle cry of the Reformation. So when we talk about the Reformation, remember we, we're thinking of Lutherans. We're thinking of the Reformed Church. We're thinking of, for example, uh, Zwingli's uh, Reformation as well in Switzerland. Uh, so it, it's not just the Lutherans over here. It's the Lutherans. It's the Reformed. And we've got John Knox in there in Scotland and, of course, the rise of Presbyterianism. So, so out of the Reformation, we have basically there's a consensus on these five solas. Now, what makes them very unique is the common denominator is the word sola. And the word sola means alone. Now, this is very, very important. Sola means alone. So uh, the five are basically sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, um, solus Christus, Christ alone, sola scriptura, scripture alone, and then soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. Notice the alone there. So let's begin with uh, faith alone. Now, in order to understand the Reformation solas, you need to understand that the the reformation was trying to reform the church luther did not have uh, in, in october 31st 1517 when he nailed the 95 theses uh he had no intention in his mind of beginning a reformation mm-hmm. uh he was uh, believed himself to be a son of the church of the roman catholic church he became a priest in the roman church and he believed in the sacraments um he actually believed in indulgences. What he didn't believe is the abuse of indulgences, mm. which Tetzel was promoting. And so uh, what began as a 95 Theses to, to debate, which is what they did. They posted articles and they would debate the issues. Right. He had no intention of, of just leaving the church until a number of things started to happen. Um, his 95 Theses, of course, went like wildfire across Germany. Uh, one of the reasons for that was that God providentially uh, brought about the printing press, which happened in the, the latter half of the 15th century with Gutenberg, Gutenberg's press. And so that allowed materials to be quickly copied and distributed. So long story short, um, one thing leads to another, as that old 80s song used to say, one thing leads to another. And uh, Luther ends up Uh, under trial, uh, and he is asked to recant. The famous uh, trial was the Diet of Worms. It doesn't mean that they ate worms or anything. The name (laughs) of the place was Worms. It's it's W-R-M, but the Germans pronounce it as a V, Worms. And uh, there he was basically challenged to, to recant, and he refused to do so. He says, unless I am convinced by scripture, uh, and by conscience, uh, I will not change my mind. Uh, and mm-hmm. and some scholars debate whether or not he said this, but he basically says counts, councils and popes have heard, uh, but unless I'm convinced by scripture and reason, I will not recant, so help me God. Anyway, he's he. they know they're going to kill him. His friends know he's done for. And so they take him out in the night, they race him off, they 
they basically kidnap him uh, and 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 take him off and put him in in the tower uh, in Germany. They put him out in the tower there. And what does he do? Well, he's bored silly there. So what does he do? He gets a copy of surprise, surprise. He gets a copy of Erasmus's Greek New Testament. The first edition was printed in 1516. And when he begins to read the Greek New Testament and he compares it with the Latin Vulgate. Now, this is really important. When he begins to look at the Latin Vulgate, that goes back to Jerome in the fifth century, um, he begins to notice something in the Latin that does not seem to match up with the Greek. Okay. So he looks at, for example, uh, John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 2, he says, do penance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he looks over to the Greek and he says, but here it says metanoia. And metanoia means to change the mind, to change direction. Mm -hmm. And that has nothing to do with doing penance. It has to do with a change of mind. And then he looked at the word for justification in, in Romans 5 and Romans 1, like the word, uh, um, the word uh, dikaio. And then he looked at the Latin Vulgate, it says justificare. And, and the way justificare was defined was it's something that you did to justify yourself. But then he looked at the Greek and he realized that it was a forensic term, that it was a, it was a term that was used in, in the courts and that it was a term that basically said uh, you, are, you are not guilty. You are declared not guilty. Right. Well, that, that caused him to do a, a translation of the whole Bible in, into German. <laughs> yeah. He sees these little problems. He's like, all right, yeah. I'm going to translate the whole book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so he takes that. Well, anyway, this is what really sparks the Reformation is he's reading Romans and he's struggling with this idea of being right with God and the whole idea of justification. See, the Roman church teaches that, that what happens is justification is not forensic in the Roman church. In the Roman church, justification is what happens at the end when you finish and you cross the finish line. So you are, you are, a child is baptized and the sacrament of baptism infuses grace into the person. Now, this is important. In Reformation theology, it's not about infusion. God does not infuse uh, this, this justification into us. It is, it is imputed to us. It's an imputation. It's a legal pronouncement where God says, not guilty, right? What the Roman church says is, no, God actually infuses this grace into you and you could maintain it or you can lose it. Mortal sin will destroy that. Sure. But but then you got to come back to confession and you need to get that grace again. Right. And, and, and so and so Luther's reading Romans one and he comes to verse 17 and it says, and the just shall live by faith. And that just blows him away. And, and that's his born again moment. He actually says it's yeah. as if the portals of paradise were open to me and I walked right through. Right. OK, well, OK, so he sparks this whole reformation and then and then Calvin gets wind of it in, in, in France. And then, and then you've got uh, the you've got William Tyndale in England, uh, and then of course later on you've got uh, John Knox, and so what ends up happening is they 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 read the scriptures afresh, and and their their model was ad fontes, ad fontes in Latin means back to the fountains, back to the sources, and then there's this other uh, uh, model that the reformers used, uh, and that is post tenebris lux. And post-tenebrous looks means after darkness light. Okay, so what do they find out? Sola fide. We are saved by faith alone, not by any works, not by any sacraments, 
not by anything we can do. There is no contribution that the human adds to God's work, finished work in Christ's death on the cross and resurrection that could supplement anything you do towards towards salvation. In other words, faith means to trust in, to cling to, to hold on to. And your only hope is Christ Jesus. And so you need to understand that when they say it is faith alone, what they were saying was works has nothing to do with this saving act of God. It is purely of God. It is a work of God alone. And therefore, what the Roman church was saying was, it is faith plus your meritorious works. And that means you're not just doing good works, but Rome believes that there is a treasure of merit called the Thesaurus Meritorium. And, And what that teaches is basically, Rome said, look, when Christ died, all you had to do is just one drop of this was enough, was sufficient to save the world. But because he he bled copiously, he bled more than he had to, there was a, a surplus, if you will, of this of this grace. And so this extra grace was added to this treasure. Think of it as a treasure box. And not just Jesus' sufferings, but the sufferings of Mary and, and of the saints. It's all added to this treasure box. Well, there's so much supplemental grace there that, well, how do I avail myself? How do I get some of this grace? Well, in order to get to the treasure box, well, you need a key. Well, who's the only one who has the keys? It's the Pope, right? Christ granted the keys to Peter. So the Pope can open the treasure, the Thesaurus Meritorium, and he could grant you indulgences, a papal indulgence. It could be a plenary indulgence, a full indulgence, or a partial indulgence. So you can understand why the Roman church was so threatened by the Reformation, because what the Reformation said was there is no need for a priesthood. All believers are priests before mm. God, the priesthood of all believers, 1 Peter 2, 9. And therefore, if all believers are priests, why do we need a special priesthood that is able to confer God's grace through the means of the sacraments, which are channels of grace? Sure. So, okay, well, let's go to grace. Well, you have quite a follow-up. Go yeah, on. where when you talked about that First Peter reference, so the priesthood of all believers, I mean, surely Catholics knew that that verse existed. I mean, sure. how do they go about looking at a verse like that and saying, no, the way we're teaching it, that's the way it is, and every person is not a, every believer is not a priest. Right. Well, they well well Roman Catholic apologists will say, oh no no, we believe that all believers are priests. Okay. Uh, but what they will say is that uh, a priest is someone who has a special ordainment. In other words, the priesthood okay. is an ordainment that uh, is which is also a sacrament, which also is channel of grace. But here's the problem: it, it's, it's that the word priest did develop probably around the third century AD in the church's history. And again, that's why church history is so important. In the Bible, there's three titles for uh, uh, a minister. The three titles are uh, pastor, elder, and bishop. So an overseer is an elder, and an elder is a pastor. These are all synonymous terms. And so in the early church, you only had had two, two offices. You had the elder and the deacons. That's what you find in the pastoral epistles. So what ends up happening is with the emergence of the 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 bishop the the episco- the episcopacy especially the idea of a mono episcopacy uh, one bishop over a city sure. what ends up happening is the elders the presbyters uh, are called priests so they started using the word priest to refer to the presbyters the mm-hmm. elders 
Okay. And then what's, what ends up happening is that as the authority of the church begins to grow, the Roman church and the Eastern church, they begin to claim that only these presbyters have this special authority from God okay. that the lay, the lay people don't have. So what the Roman church would say is that, uh, is that uh, the apostles ordained uh, these elders who, who, who were actually priests. Uh, but that is not the language the New Testament uses for elders sure. and pastors and, and overseers and so forth. Um, so um, Rome will acknowledge that, but Rome still acknowledges that there's this priesthood. And, and the priest has this special power, uh, Eli, that this is what brings a lot of fear into the Roman church is that when they defrock a priest, when a priest is excommunicated, there's, there's, there's only one problem. You cannot remove the mark of his ordainment. That's right. Once he receives that mark of Christ, you cannot erase it, which means technically that a priest can take regular bread and regular wine, and he can transubstantiate that bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. And so the fear is that some of these priests might do this for blasphemous reasons, mm -hmm. but they still have that authority. That authority is irrevocable. Even if they, they become unbelievers? It. Correct. Okay. Because you can't remove that mark. Sure. That 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 mark, that stamp, is an indelible stamp. It's a mark on the soul. Rome teaches so, so, that so can never a, be removed. If a Catholic priest apostatized and became an atheist, he can still have this ability if he wanted to yes. quote mess around. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. Well, you know the word aber. You know the whole hocus, hocus pocus. I don't know if you're familiar, Eli, but you know the phrase hocus pocus uh, comes out of this whole idea of transubstantiation because. Mm -hmm. In Latin, when, when the priest would, would say the Mass, uh, prior to Vatican II, the Mass was in Latin, uh, he would quote the words of Jesus in the Vulgate, in the Latin Vulgate, where Jesus says, uh, uh, hoc, uh, hoc est corpus meum, uh, this is my body. body. And so, hoc, uh, hoc est corpus meum, to the average person, it sounds like hocus pocus. And so, it, it's from that that you get this, this slang, this mm. model, that refers to all this, this magical stuff because yeah. transubstantiation says this bread is no longer bread after consecration. Yeah. It's actually the body and blood of Christ. Hmm. Yeah. All right. So we have uh, sola gratia, sola fide, uh, yeah. sola Christus, sola scriptura. Yeah. Right. So you, yeah. you went you went from fide, you went to gratia, fide, and now uh, solus Christus. Yeah. Well, I mentioned fide. I mentioned sola fide. Let me quickly just mention sola gratia. Sure. Uh, sola gratia means grace alone. And, and again, word grace, charis in Greek, uh, charis means unmerited favor. It, it's something that you did not merit. And so in Ephesians 2 8, you know, the famous passage, by grace, by charis, you have been saved. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, verse 9, lest anyone should boast. And so Paul says it is by or through grace, it is by grace, through faith, that you have been saved. And, and notice these words, and these are not of yourselves. The word these there, it, it's, it's a neuter plural um, uh, pronoun. It's referring to both grace and faith. Because a lot of people think, oh, it's my faith that saved mm -hmm. me. But, but even Paul says it has been given unto you to believe. So that even faith itself is a gift of God. These are not of yourselves. What is not? Grace and peace. And, and then he says... It is a gift of God. And so if if it's grace and it is a gift of God and it's not of works, then no one can boast. Mm. I can't say, hey, you know what, Eli? I got more brownie points than you because, you know, I, I became a little more righteous this week. I can't do that because 
before God, salvation, and it has always been this way. Uh, you know, our dispensationalist friends, some of the classical, like C.I. Schofield thought that the Old Testament people were saved by the law, by works. No, no one has ever been saved by the works. Uh, the, there's only one person who, uh, you know, salvation is by works, but it's been only worked by one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who perfectly kept the law for us. He never broke God's law. And, and so his work is the perfect work. And that grace says to us that salvation is not given to you by a priest or a bishop or a pope or a church council. Salvation is given by unmerited favor. It is a gift of God. And, and that grace cannot be manipulated. You can't have a church that says, well, if you want grace, you know, you have to come to us because we can dispense grace through the sacraments uh, or Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus is the dispenser of all graces. And mm -hmm. so you can get grace from her and so forth. Sola gratia says, absolutely not. It is grace alone all the way from start to finish. And therefore, if it's by grace alone, then the Roman Catholic teaching that you need the sacraments and you need to go to the mass every Sunday, you need uh, you need this penance and so forth. All of that goes out the window. It seems, you can it, seems see, yeah. it seems interesting to me, though, when you see all of the pomp and circumstance and all of the details that are put forth by the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church. And then you read the New Testament there. There seems to be like a simplicity to the New Testament. Yeah, it seems to get bogged down when the church is, quote, established and all yeah. of these things are coming together. It's kind of like uh, I get why you're doing that. But when you read the Gospels, it's, it, it seems like there's just so much of this added on clumped on. Yeah. Which actually yeah. obscures really the, right. the central important things in the Gospels themselves. There's all these different That's extra right. things that, that need to be thrown into the mix. Well, well, what the Roman church has basically done and the and the Orthodox churches. They've gone, I, I explained it this way, they have gone back into the shadows. And what I mean by that is, remember the Bible says that the law was a shadow of good things to come. You know, the, the Sabbath and, and, the, and the, the holidays, the, the Old Testament feast days, the new moon festivals, all of these, Paul says, were a shadow, but the reality is Christ. But look at the Roman church. They've got a priest and they've got a barrier there. You can't cross that barrier. They've got the, the blessed, tap, the, the sacrament in the tabernacle, where they believe Christ is is there in flesh and, and divinity and his body and blood. And so you've got vestments, you've got priestly vestments. That doesn't sound New Testament-ish. That is Old Testament, is it not? The whole mm -hmm. concept of the censors using incense in the church, uh, that is Old Testament. And, and what you find is that the Roman church very much has almost gone back into the shadows of the Old Covenant. And you have the church is, is a building. And it's a sacred ground. Whereas the New Testament says ecclesia is an assembly. It's a gathering of people. It's not a building of brick and stone and stained glass windows. It's just to keep the elements out. But isn't it interesting that one, one person put it this way, and it's very interesting, is that the New Testament, the New Covenant, basically replaces the altar. The altar is gone because Christ has finished his work. And we have the Lord's table where we come together to remember the finished work of Christ. And what the Roman church seems to have done is it's brought the altar back. Hmm. And, and that's exactly what you find. You go into a Roman church and they'll say, well, there's the altar. It's right there. But where in the New Testament does Paul talk about the church having an altar 
incense and priestly vestments that is totally foreign so now you can see why the reformers said at fontes back to the fountains back to the sources and now you can see like you said it's like think of it like an onion with all the the extra layers and what the reformers said was hey let's peel those layers and let's get back to the root and that's exactly what they did mm. and all that accretion of church tradition and papal decrees and all of that just had to that it really if you will muffled the voice of the gospel mm -hmm. all right so so what about uh what about solus christus and christ yes. alone what, what and christ why alone did reformers yeah. emphasize christ alone yeah because they didn't just emphasize it for no reason i mean there's a context right. that brought about right. each of these points so what was going on in the catholic church that led to the reformers emphasizing the alone aspect of christ Right. Well, one of the reasons was that Rome taught that uh, you could uh, you could uh, obtain grace through various intercessors. And so the, the greatest intercessor was Mary, the mother of Jesus, the mother of God. And uh, since she was the, the most holy virgin, the blessed virgin, and she was due hyperdulia, the Roman Catholic Church says we we give her hyperdulia. We give dulia to the saints but she gets hyperdulia because she's the mother of God. And so what they believed was that Mary, there was this Mariolatry that had developed in the church where Mary had assumed a position that the New Testament never gave her. Mm -hmm. She became uh, the, the mediatrix between Christ and men. Yes, Christ is the mediator, 1 Timothy 2.5, but between Christ and men, there's a mediatrix, mm -hmm. and that's Mary. She becomes a co-redemptrix so that the belief arises that Mary cooperated with her son in, in saving the world. And she's a co-mediatrix. She also mediates between us and Christ. And it's interesting because when I when Pope John Paul II came up to Canada and he came to Toronto, I became I was just become a young Christian at the time. And uh, this was back in the 1980s. So I, I, I'm showing my age here. Um, and uh, the best music came out at that time, too. But uh, <laughs> Amen. anyway. <laughs> Anyway, the Pope came out to speak uh, in one of these big airport uh, landings, and and I remember him as, as if it was yesterday, talking about how at the cross, Mary shared in the suffering of her son, and together with her son, they offer the world salvation. So the understanding was that Christ was so holy, he was so distant, that the only way that we could approach this, this judge with the frown on his face was to approach him through his mother and who can resist a mother i mean you know would christ resist his mother and so forth and the idea was that that there were these extra channels of grace so you can get it from mary you can get it from saint anthony saint joseph and saint jude and so forth and then you can get it from the pope as well and when the reformers said christ alone what they were saying was this there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved and there is no salvation in anyone else so take, for example, uh, the Ave Maria, the, the prayer that is given to, to, to Mary. Ave Maria, and it says, uh, it says, uh, plenus gratia, full of grace. And she is called the one who is full of grace and the dispenser of graces. Now look through the New Testament, and what do we find? John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. Who is filled with grace and truth? The Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we find then is the reformers said, look, we need to emphasize 
the uniqueness of Christ, that he alone is the true savior of men, and that it is his salvific work, his redemptive work is the only hope of sinners. So when you said Christ alone, it also removed the Pope because the Pope claimed, as he does today, that he is the Cari Christi, that he is the vicar of Christ, the representative of Christ on the earth, that he is the head of the visible church, not the invisible church, but the head of the visible church. And so by declaring Christ alone as the true head of the church, what the reformers were emphasizing was that the Pope has no authority whatsoever. And when they denounced him as antichrist, it's very interesting. I don't know if you know this, Eli, but you know the word anti in Greek, the preposition anti has two meanings. It means to be against or to be in the place of. The word vicaris Christi in Latin means, vicaris means to be in the place of. Mm. So the, Rome, the, the reformers looked at that and just said, by your own admission, you have admitted to be antichrist. You claim to be in the place of Christ, which is what antichrist does. Mm. And therefore, uh, that title is still the title of the Pope. We see that in words like vicarious atonement. What does vicarious atonement mean? Christ vicariously died in the place of sinners. He died in the stead of sinners. So by denouncing the papacy, what the reformers were saying was, it's Christ plus zero, Christ alone. Christ does not need to add anyone else because he is the perfect mediator between God and humanity. Mm -hmm. And there is no need for any other. He alone is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. So Solus Christus is clearly taught in the New Testament. You can't read John 14, 6 without thinking of Solus Christus mm -hmm. or Acts 4, 12. So the uniqueness of Christ, the, the absolute necessity of Christ as our Redeemer was something that the Reformers emphasized again and again and again, and that he is the one and only head of the church. There is no other head but Christ Jesus himself. Mm. And that's a great segue into the next one, which I think is so foundational. And this the yes. next the next sola is what a lot of Protestants deal with within the context of apologetics, more specifically, because yes. uh, it really gets to the heart of the source of authority. And a lot of people, you know, I mean, I'm a teacher as well, and I teach, uh, um, you know, apologetics, biblical worldview, mm -hmm. things like that. Um, mm -hmm. People ask me all the time, what's the difference between, say, Roman Catholicism and Protestantism? Yeah. And the, the surface level answer is typically, well, Protestants don't pray to the saints Catholics do, you know, or Protestants <laughs> don't, uh, you know, they'll, they'll list a whole bunch of things that are kind of the external differences that when a Protestant looks at a Catholic, well, where's that in the Bible? But I, I've come to understand personally that the main difference between Protestants and Catholicism is their source of authority. Right. It's because we hold to Sola Scriptura. Right. That when we look at the Catholic, we say, well, where's that in the Bible? Because we, right. we, we see the source of authority being in scripture uh, alone, the only infallible rule of faith. Obviously, we acknowledge right. other, other sources of, of authority. Right. Right. But um, why don't you dive into defining what sola scriptura is and what it is not, and then right. we'll take it from there, because I think that's sure. important to keep in mind. Sure, and I like the way you, you mentioned authority, because, because within the word authority is the word author, mm. right? So the, the author, the one who gives it the, the, the power or the force of is behind the author is the one that is the one that gives or or imbues that 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 power onto the scriptures. So sure. so when we talk about authority, uh, we come back to scripture 
the Roman church does not, the Roman church believes that she is the one who created the canon of scripture. And so what you have is you have in Rome the, an authoritative list of the canon. Notice the authority lies in the list created by the church. So the church will say, we created the canon of scripture. And you'll hear Roman Catholic apologists say, if it was not for the Roman church, you would not even know that Matthew was canonical. But I've heard, and and I and that's what I, I've heard that, but I've also heard, I, I think, uh, a Catholic apologist, Trent Horn, in passing, I don't remember the source, so I don't, yeah. you know, don't, quote, don't quote me, but um, I heard him say that the church recognizes the scripture. So would, yeah, a Catholic, that... would a Catholic say, we recognize what God inspired, but only the Catholic church has the ability to recognize it. And so in that exactly. sense... Yeah, in that sense, yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, recognizing the, the authority of Scripture is more of a, of a Protestant approach, but of course they recognize it because Rome has defined it. Rome has defined the list of the canon and so forth. But, but the, the Protestant view is not that we have an authoritative list, but we have a list of authoritative books. Mm -hmm. And so sola scriptura, which must not be confused with solo scriptura. Sola scriptura does not mean... I'm not going to read anything else but the Bible. It's me, myself, and a Bible under a cherry tree. The view of Sola Scriptura says that Scripture alone is the highest authority and the absolute authority in matters of faith and practice. Now, Sola Scriptura does not say we can't read the Church Fathers. We can't read the Church Councils. It doesn't say we cannot read um, books on science or we can't read New Newton's you know, Principia Mathematica, we can't read Galileo, we can't read the philosophers. That's not what it means. In fact, all the reformers uh, love the fathers of the church. Yeah. Luther said, we, we love the church fathers, but they're not infallible. And Calvin said the same thing. Mm -hmm. So the solo scriptura types are, are the types where you have, I don't need anything else. It's the Bible. It's my only authority. I don't need to study theology. I don't need to read Spurgeon. I don't need to read... Uh, Wesley, I don't need to read uh, Calvin, uh, the Institutes. I, I don't need any of that. So this is what you find mostly in the fundamentalist, uh, sometimes mostly KGB-only churches, Okay, this type of mentality. So sola scriptura does not mean that we have everything Jesus said, because even John admits that we don't have everything he said. Right. We, don't, we, have, we don't have an exhaustive account, but we have a sufficient account, what is necessary for salvation. And so Sola Scriptura basically says this, Scripture rules at the end of the day. Sola Scriptura does not say tradition is a bad thing. Because as you know, Eli, there's a lot of tradition in evangelical circles. Sure. All right? And some churches will split over those traditions. Right? And so, and so the view is this, tradition is subservient to authority of Scripture. In the Roman Catholic view, what they do is you've got Scripture, and then what you do is you've got sacred tradition. And these two are equal. And here's the problem. They regard sacred tradition on the same level playing field as scripture. They're on par with each other. So Rome and the Eastern Church, Orthodox Church, has a two-source authority. And so if it's not in the Bible, you'll say, hey, where's purgatory in the Bible? Well, it's actually, well, we think it's in 2 Maccabees. Yeah, but that's apocryphal. And But but the Rome church, Roman Church will say, yes, but... But we have church tradition. The fathers of the church have taught this, and they've mm -hmm. taught that. And so when, when the reformers said sola scriptura, they knew exactly what they were up against. They were saying it's not scripture and tradition because sacred tradition, so-called sacred tradition, 
violates, in fact, has contradicted scripture. You know, Jesus had nothing, Jesus was not opposed to tradition. We know he kept Hanukkah, John 10, 22. He kept the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. We know that when he kept, when he had Passover, you know, the use of the cup in the Passover was not mandated by God in Exodus 12. There's nothing said about the, the, the wine. This is something that developed later in Judaism, probably after Ezra. Um, but then again, when, when tradition violated scripture in Mark 7, Jesus comes right out and says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah speak of you. Uh, you nullify God's commandments by the doctrines of men. And so as long as tradition does not violate scripture, the reformed church or the reformers had no issues with tradition. The Puritans were a little more austere. They, the, the Puritans would say, unless it's in the Bible, we will not do it. And so the Puritans uh, followed the regulative principle, we call it. The Anglican Church, the Church of England follows the normative. Well, if it's not condemned in Scripture, then, you know, on, on good and, and necessary, uh, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, in, introspection, we can allow for this. Okay. Um, so, so again, there's a lot of misunderstandings. Sola Scripture does not say all knowledge is in the Bible. It yeah. says everything pertaining to faith and practice and God's voice. It is the only text, Eli, that is called Theanustas. It's right. God-breathed. No other text is called Theanustas but the Scriptures. So, so two things. So let's put this within an apologetics context where Protestants are interacting with Catholics or Eastern Orthodox folks. You often hear two things. One you've mentioned and the other one you haven't mentioned, but you might as well have mentioned it if we sure. got that far. Um, if it hadn't been for the Roman Catholic Church, if it hadn't been for the Eastern Orthodox Church, you wouldn't have. Yes. Bible. So yes. how would you, in a very yes. sharp, well-defined way, respond to that common objection? Very simple. I would say, how did a Jew living before Christ, let's say in the time of the judges, how would a Jew know that Joshua was canonical? Or how would, uh, how would uh, King David know that, uh, how would King David know that the book of Judges was canonical? Mm -hmm. Or the book of Ruth? In other words, there was no church in the Old Testament period. We had the people of Israel. And, and for the most part of their history, they had a theocracy where, they, where God ruled over them through Moses and then later the Davidic kings until that was destroyed in 586 BC. And so what I would say was that in the Old Testament period, who, who kept the canon of the Old Testament? Well, I would say that God supervised the, the scriptures in such a way that his people would recognize his voice. You know, Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. Right. And so the church recognized the voice of, of the master. And it wasn't a church council that decided to get together and say, okay, we're going to have a vote now. Which books are in? which books are out. In fact, the Council of Trent, you had to wait until 1546 for the Council of Trent to not just um, renounce all the reformers and all the reform doctrines, but it was really at the Council of Trent where they made this official statement about the Apocrypha, mm -hmm. that the Apocrypha was included in Holy Scripture. But before that, we need to understand that when you look at the early church history um, and, and Rome says, well, we decided the canon. Well, in the early formative period of the church, there, there was books like the Shepherd of Hermas that, that were being read by Christians. There was the Epistle of Barnabas that were, was being read by Christians. Take, for example, the Eastern Orthodox Church makes exactly the same claim 
But if you look at their Old Testament canon, they've got many more books than the Roman Catholic Church. So they've got 1st, 2nd Maccabees, but they also got 3rd and 4th Maccabees. And they also got the prayer of Manasseh, and they've got the 151st Psalm. So the what you find here, and then if you go to the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, the Ethiopian Church has the Book of Jubilees and the Book of Enoch in their canon. That does not sound like a uniform canon. That's that that what you find is that there are these unique churches that are claiming this authority to themselves and creating these canons to basically um, uh, establish their own authority. Mm-hmm. So I think Bruce Metzger got it right. Bruce Metzger said that the canon was not created by the church, but that the, the canon formed the church. It was the canon that formed the church. It was the other way around. And I think it's the leading of the Holy Spirit that, that believers heard the word of God. There was, there was basically four criteria. It had to be written by an apostle or an associate of an apostle. It had to be written in the first century. It had to cohere with Orthodox teaching, that is biblical teaching about Christ. And, and fourthly, it had to have a Catholicity to it. Uh, not meaning Roman Catholic, but this universal reading of, the, of these books. And and so by the time you get to 367 AD with Athanasius in his uh, 39th Festal Easter letter to the churches, okay. he actually enumerates all the 27 books of the New Testament. But up to that point, there was some question about, you know, is Second Peter really part of the canon? Yeah, Jude, you know, Jude quotes these weird sources. And then you've got uh, James and... And then you've got uh, Hebrews and second and third John. Mm. Are you still with us? I think you went blank. Oh, there you're back nope, now. Sorry. Right. That's okay. <laughs> with that. That's I'm okay. not used to doing it with the iPad. So I was trying to multitask there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. So, so, okay. So you said that, that the, the people of God hear his voice, they recognize the voice of the shepherd, but, but then you get into the issue of say like the Roman Catholics and like Eastern Orthodox claiming certain church fathers, who are hearing the word you see so my yes. church father is better than your church father yeah so we should follow this stream of tradition as opposed to that stream of tradition so then how do you differentiate then which stream of church father tradition is hearing from the voice of god or not it seems to me that the yeah. only way to determine is to look at scripture yeah well i think part of the yes exactly but part of the problem is again what I appreciate about the Reformed perspective is we believe in the noetic effects of the fall. So mm-hmm. we, we understand that, 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 yes, we can hear the voice of the master, uh, but sometimes uh, due to our sinful nature, due to our fallenness, we hear the message. But take, for example, I mean, the whole debate over paedo-baptism and credo-baptism. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are people who, who love the Lord and hear his voice, but you know, the late Dr. R.C. Sproul believed paedo-baptism was part of the early church. Uh, but then many others, uh, Spurgeon and, and other pa- uh, credo-baptists would say, no, the, the early church was about credo-baptism, believers' baptism, and so mm-hmm. forth. So we've got these, these, these you know, these two groups in, in, in the church, faithful to the voice of the master, of the shepherd, but then they're coming around and they're saying, well, you know, I think baptism is for children. Well, well, one of us is right. Uh, you know, it, it was either paedo-baptism was established by the first century New Testament church, or it was credo-baptism. And then under the mighty influence of Augustine, paedo-baptism came onto the scene. Um, so again, I, I think, and the whole issue about uh, Calvinism and, and Arminianism, I don't take the view that some hardline Calvinists take that all Arminians are, are hellbound and that they're all lost. 
I think there's there's brethren in, in the Armenian church, in the Armenian uh, churches, Wesleyan churches. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt John Wesley was saved. I mean, Spurgeon said he'd be at the front by the throne uh, and I'd be all the way back here. Um, so we do hear the voice of the master, but again, we need to take into effect into into account the effect of the noetic uh, uh, the noetic results of the fall, uh, and so that's the best way that I can explain that. Again, yeah. the church fathers were not infallible. How did Irenaeus get the view that Jesus Christ was fifty years old when he died? And he claimed he got that from the apostles. In fact, the first time um, uh, apostolic tradition is used is by Irenaeus. And he claimed he got this from apostolic tradition that Jesus was 50 years old. Mm. I don't know any Roman Catholic apologist or theologian today who thinks Jesus was 50 years old when he died. Yeah. Um, so these are some of the complexities I think uh, we need to take. So what about the idea? Okay, well, Sola Scriptura is a recipe. It's a recipe for chaos. <laughs> we hear this all the time, right? That's why you yeah. have all of the different denominations because of yeah. Sola Scriptura. And that number and keeps an inflating, keeps growing, that keeps number. Keeps inflating. Why yeah. don't you address that objection and um, kind of myth bust it? Because it is, it is, yeah, there are some aspects. I mean, it is true that you do have a lot of denominations, but um, I, there's more to the story. Why don't you unpack that for us? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, when they say that it's the cause of all this division and and schism and so forth, well, I mean, if you look at the Roman church, she's she's not very monolithic as you would like to think, she's quite she's quite fractured and broken into little pieces. I mean, I mean, when you think about it, we got a Marxist pope right now. Uh, Pope Francis is, is a Marxist. You could tell by his liberation theology. Uh, he's very uh, socialist in his leanings. Um, and within the Roman Church, I mean, you've got the city vacanists who who think that there's been no pope on the on in in Peter's chair since John the was John the twenty third or so, or just before Paul the sixth, I think. And and then you've got these other groups that that don't agree with birth control in the Roman Church and 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 and, and pro Catholic gay groups and so forth and so on. But when when you look at evangelicalism uh, with with the doctrines of sola scriptura, um, the the so called divisions that we hear about a lot of them are are really exaggerated. They will throw in Jehovah's Witnesses in there. They'll throw in cults in there and so forth. What you find is that what Sola Scriptura has done is when you look at the Reformation, the Reformers did not divide over any, any fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. What they divided on was issues like, for example, Luther and Zwingli had very sharp disagreements over the Lord's Supper. You know, Luther holding to something like what we would call today consubstantiation. Zwingli mm -hmm. was more of a memorial view of the Lord's Supper and so forth. And there were different views on administration of government and so forth. And then when the Anabaptists came to the scene, they believed in separation of church and state. But when we talk about divisions, we need to be very careful here. We must not confuse unity with uniformity. Uniformity means, you know, you know those kids that used to go to Catholic school, they all wore the same tops, the same pants, the same, everything was the same. Well, I work right? at a Christian private school, so the kids... Oh, there you go. So you know what I'm talking about. Or, you know, when you think about it, it's, uh, you know, it, it's basically you walk this way, you talk this way, you do all the readings. It's the same readings. It's it's everything is done uh, in the same way. You know, it's like that old saying, walk this way, talk this way. right? And so and so unity does not mean uniformity. Unity means, look, we have a unity of we have these creeds that unify us. Protestants hold to the Apostles Creed. They hold to the Nicene Creed, the creeds of Chalcedon and so forth. 
And, and so where you find these divisions is usually uh, in, in areas that are really secondary, issues that do not pertain to the, to the fundamentals of the Christian faith, whether it be baptism or the Lord's Supper or whether it's congregationalist or whether it's, it's a plurality of elders. And so we can debate this. We can talk about these things. But they're not enough to, 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 to uh, separate us from the bond that we have in Christ. And then again, we need to take into account there's also a lot of the liberal, the liberal uh, spirit that came into the church in the 19th century with higher criticism and so forth. Mm. That also led to the creation of, of many of these uh, so-called liberal churches, liberal Protestantism and so forth, uh, where you, you have this pro-choice, pro-LGBTQ view. And so a lot of the divisions that we see are not the result of sola scriptura. They're actually the result of a denial of sola scriptura, a denial of God's absolute right to speak to his church. Uh, and so that's where I see a lot of these fissures taking place. But they're not unique just to Protestantism. You see them also going on in the Roman church. Mm. All right. Very good. Um, OK, well, here here is uh, you, we can go on forever. Uh, oh, yeah. Sola Scriptura is a big one. There's a couple of objections that I hear. The problem with Sola Scriptura is it's found nowhere in Scripture. And uh, the Bible itself teaches the authority of tradition. And so they would often appeal to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, right. which says, So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we pass on to you, whether by word or of mouth, um, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Why don't you tackle those last two questions? Sure. And then let me summarize real quick just now so that sure. when you finish, we can just move on to the Q&A because I, yeah. I don't want to I want to respect the time. Yeah. Soli Deo Gloria, if, 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 if you can correct me, summarizes all of the previous solas in that right. once we if we hold to these, this really highlights that salvation is completely and utterly of the Lord. That God, right. God provides the grace. God gifts us faith. Uh, God sends Christ. God gives us the scriptures. And this is all to, to the glory of God. So, again, that's I don't want to undermine that last point. Obviously, that's a huge point. Uh, but right. we are running out of time. So why don't we sure. take the last two questions uh, that I'm posing to you sure. with regards to um, Sola Scriptura. And then we'll take some of the questions in the live chat. Sure. So, sure. number one, how can you believe in Sola Scriptura when Sola Scriptura itself is not found in scripture? And two... What do you do with Second Thessalonians chapter two verse fifteen, which seems to suggest uh, that you know tradition is should be held as authoritative? Right. Okay. So let's deal with uh, sola scriptura, uh, uh, saying that it's nowhere found in scripture. Now, obviously, the word's nowhere found in scripture. Uh, just like the word Trinity is not found in scripture, the question is: is the concept there? And I think it is. I think it's clearly enunciated in Second Timothy three sixteen to seventeen. All scripture is God breathed. And that scripture includes not just the Old Testament, but but the New Testament. There, there are uh, passages in the New Testament where uh, the Gospel of Luke is being referred to as scripture in 1 Timothy 5.18. 2 Peter 3.16, Peter refers to Paul's letters as being among the other scriptures. They distort the letters of Paul like they do the other scriptures. So we already see the formation of, of the New Testament scriptures as well. And so Paul says all scripture is God-breathed. It's, it's theanustos, God breathed it out. And it's profitable for what? Teaching, for equipping, uh, for instruction, for rebuking. It sounds like pretty authoritative stuff here. And for what purpose? What's the teleology? What's the telos? 
for the purpose so that the, the man of God may be thoroughly furnished, uh, totally equipped. Well, how can he be thoroughly furnished if scripture is not sufficient? If, if you need scripture and tradition, he can't be thoroughly furnished or fully furnished. He can only be fully furnished if scripture is adequate. And I think the fact that Jesus pointed to the scriptures against the tradition of the elders over and over again, he showed that the scriptures trumped uh, the Jewish traditions that were held by the, the, the rabbinic teachers. And, and so it's very clear from the scriptures that, that what God says is the final judgment. Jesus himself lived by that. Okay, let's get to... Uh, to 2 Thessalonians 2, and there's okay. another one in, in chapter 3. When Paul talks about the teachings and the traditions that we've passed down to you, uh, if you notice, that the, the context is, is passive. He doesn't say this tradition is going to be a living stream that is going to continue through the church. After I'm gone, it's going to continue through Timothy, and then Timothy's going to lay his hands on these other elders, and it's going to continue through them. He says what we have taught you, what the traditions we've passed on to you. What are these traditions? Well, the oral passing on of the gospel. The tradition Paul's referring to in, in the Jewish culture of his day, a tradition was an oral uh, body of information that they had received uh, like divine inspiration. For example, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, what I received, I passed on to you. That's traditional language. What did he receive? The creed, Christ died for our sins, according to scriptures, was buried, was raised again. Um, and, and I received of the Lord in the night in which he was betrayed, that the Lord took bread. Well, how did Paul receive that? Well, he could have received it by direct revelation from the Lord, or it could have been he met with Peter in, in Jerusalem for 14 days. And as C.H. Dodd famously said, they were not talking about the weather for those 14 days. They were, he was being informed about the life of Jesus and what he said. And so the traditions that Paul's referring to here is clearly his oral instruction, his oral teachings. And Paul is an inspired writer. And this is also the process of inscripturation. What is inscripturation? It's the process where scripture is still being written. The canon has not yet been closed. And so Paul was still writing scripture as were the other followers of Jesus. And so it's important to realize that what demanded the New Testament to be written is not that the, the information was unreliable, that, that the, the passing on of this gospel tradition was unreliable. It's just that the eyewitnesses were dying off. They're being killed off. And in order to preserve that, God moved them to write it down. Hmm. And so I don't know any Roman Catholic theologian who believes that any pope is an inspired uh, apostle like Paul. That is, they don't believe the canon is open, like the Mormon church thinks you could still have these extra revelations. The Roman church believes in a closed canon. And, and when the canon closed, the Church of Rome did not add any books to the New Testament. They did to the Old, but they didn't do so to the New Testament. Mm -hmm. So what I would say, Eli, is that I think from the context of First and Second Thessalonians, the traditions that Paul's passing down is the gospel. It's the gospel message that he was teaching the Thessalonians. All right. Okay, very good. Again, huge topic. <laughs> huge yes, topic. very um, huge. Uh, I think you're doing you're doing really well, and we are now going to move into some of the audience questions. And so I saw this one earlier. Uh, someone kind of took issue with a, a comment you said with regards to cooperation and salvation. And so here's a question from Provisionism 101. 
You said those who cooperate with God's grace are Pelagian. Is not that saying Arminians, that's what he says, are heretics since Pelagianism is heresy. Can you please correct your error? <laughs> yes. Well, I think that uh, prevenient grace is, is Wesley taught prevenient grace, which I reject, obviously. He believed that there was grace before grace. Um, if, if you follow a lot of what Wesley says, Wesley does believe in, in, in the human will. That, that man's will is not bound. And incidentally, that was a huge Reformation issue, wasn't it? With Luther debating the bondage of the will against Erasmus, the Roman Catholic, who taught the freedom of the will. Um, but I think Wesley would, would come back on that and say that God's salvation is given to us purely by grace. And it is on the basis of faith. And there's nothing we can do to attain that salvation that yes, we receive it. And he would see that faith as a, a reception of that, of that gift of God's grace. But is, does that mean that there are some Arminians who believe in cooperation or synergism? Yeah, there are. And I think there, they are verging on this Pelagianism. I would not deny that. But I know many Wesleyans, uh, those who hold to an Arminian faith, who deny any concept of cooperation with God's grace. Um, they don't believe that they were saved by anything they did, but uh, they would just uh, qualify that by saying, but I, I, I believe my will was not bound, that, that mm -hmm. I, I turned my life over to Jesus Christ. But were you saved by anything you did? They would say, absolutely not. So, I mean, there are extremes in, in Arminianism, to be sure. There are hyper-Arminians, just like there are hyper-Calvinists. Uh, and I think that... Um, I think our attitude should be that of George Whitfield and John Wesley. I mean, Whitfield and Wesley were on opposite ends of soteriology. But at the end of the day, Wesley could say to uh, Whitfield could say Wesley was a man of God, that he was a brother in the Lord, and and Wesley could say the same about Whitfield. And Spurgeon again, Spurgeon did not think Wesley was a heretic. In fact, he thought Wesley was way beyond him in terms of proximity to the throne of God. So I think we just need to be careful here, but I appreciate the questioner. We need to watch out because the Pelagian head keeps wearing up. And so uh, we need to be very careful here and define our terms very, very carefully. Okay, all right. I'm going to move on here. Um, should have started at the bottom, but let's see here. All right, here's a question uh, by Mr. C. Uh, was the crucifixion not a work? And are we not required to take up our crosses, which would also be a work? Okay, good question. Yes, the crucifixion was a work, but it was a work of God. It was the work of Christ. So the, the cross of Christ is the means by which Christ makes atonement for his people. Now, to take up our crosses is, is not the same as Jesus taking up his cross. Uh, Jesus did not die with Simon. Simon of Serene did not become a co-redeemer because he helped Jesus carry the cross. Uh, we take up our crosses uh, in the sense of, of surrender. Jesus made that very clear. The context was you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily. Well, obviously, you know, Jesus uh, carried the cross once and his work was once for all. But we are to carry our crosses daily. And what that means is we are called to die to ourselves every day. And the only ones who carry their crosses are those who are condemned to die. We are condemned to death in this world because we follow Christ. And so the idea is carry your cross and expect suffering, to expect the suffering that's coming our way, the Via Dolorosa, the sorrowful way is the way of Christ as well. 
And that at the end of the day, we are to die daily. Isn't that what Paul says? To offer up your bodies as living sacrifices? That's an oxymoron. Whoever heard of a living sacrifice? Usually sacrifices have to be killed in order to be put on the altar, right? But the problem, as one person put it, is we keep rolling off the altar. We don't want to uh, offer up our bodies as living sacrifices. It, it, so, almost seems like, it almost seems like the question is saying, well, the crucifixion was a work and right. we need to take up our cross. So in a sense, yeah. works contributes to the process. Well, it's not that works contributes to the process of salvation, but that works are the result mm -hmm. of the work of salvation. And so right, works is right. the fruit, the fruit of our faith, that, that the faith that God has given us. And so, and so uh, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Right. It's, it's a given that if you are regenerate, the Holy Spirit will produce fruit in your life. And part of that fruit is obedience to Christ, to follow Christ. And that, what do the sheep do? The sheep of Christ follow the shepherd where he goes. Right. And so it, it's not a work where we where we earn our salvation or we we cooperate with Christ, but rather it, it's a call to surrender. It's a call to die to ourselves. It's not about my needs. It's about him and his Very lordship. Good. Very good. All right. Let's move on to the next question here. Planting goes bulldog. You got to love the in the names. I like that. Bulldog, and there's literally a picture of a bulldog and Alvin planting in the background. I know the church fathers are not infallible, but it seems like consistency in the early church is really important. Is this what they taught? And I guess they were saying this with regards to one of the one of the sola. So perhaps this person is seeing there's a consistency in the early church. And then, of course, perhaps you get kind of this innovation that is produced in the Reformation. How would you yeah. address that? Yeah, there, there's a lot of dynamics going on here. A, a great book that I would uh, that I would recommend is actually by Nathan Busenitz, I believe it is, uh, Before Luther. It's called Before Luther, uh, published by Crossway. It's an excellent book. He goes right back to the early fathers, okay. and he demonstrates how many of these early fathers were renunciating many of these principles that we were talking about today. So... When, when you look at people like um, uh, the Epistle of Diognetius, for example, it is, it is so reformed that you would think that, that Kelvin wrote it. Um, if, when you read, for example, Clement, uh, the letter of Clement to the Corinthians, Clement of Rome, he talks about God predestinating his people from the foundation of the world, that this is a gift of God, nothing that we could do to save ourselves. And then we move along, we come to Augustine, and Augustine opposes Pelagius and says, it is all of God's grace that saves us. And God pre predestines his people unto salvation. And, and, and even in Augustine, he'll talk about the massa damnata, the masses are damned. And so what you find is that, is that you do have this, this stream of, of biblical teaching, but then you've got some of the fathers like Clement of Alexandria, and he loves Greek philosophy. Clement of Alexandria loves Plato. And mm -hmm. a lot of these fathers try to harmonize philosophical ideas and categories with Christianity. Uh, and But Tertullian says, hey, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? We don't need it. Just chuck it out. And then Blaise Pascal later in the medieval period will say, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not the God of the philosophers. But some of the fathers of the church started to bring in some, let's just say, some uh, philosophical ideas. Um, I mean, you get to Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas is totally Aristotelian in his approaches. And so what is happening is the voice is, is being heard of Christ. But remember those old records, Eli? Remember those old ones that 
we put on the turntable. Well, I'm, remember, only 30, I'm only 38. So, <laughs> okay. so yeah. you're a baby in comparison to me. But I remember we used to have that turntable and you'd get the needle there, right? And then over time, you'd scratch it. And then all of a sudden, you get these bumps. And then what would happen is it, it, would, it would skip. So I think what happens is we've got, you know, we've got the turntable. We hear the voice of the master. And as time progresses, you start getting scratches on that turntable and, and bumps along the way. You get some accretions. And, and so, and so you, you got some of these philosophical uh, interpretations coming into the scriptures. You know, when you get to Origen, Origen, brilliant, brilliant theologian, but yes. Origen goes into the pre-existence of souls, and then he believes in universalism, and then there's this, Eusebius says he castrated himself. We get some really weird stuff happening, but but there is still that, that voice is still coming through. Sometimes it's muffled, sometimes it comes back out again, but um, I think it's important to realize that these fathers of the church, not a lot of them... Uh, some of them didn't know the languages, like like Augustine. Augustine did not know Greek mm -hmm. uh, or Hebrew. I mean, he knew Latin. Uh, he was a great philosopher, but he wasn't too good as a grammarian. That's why Jerome had the upper hand on him when it came to sure. the languages. So you know what? Uh, you gotta love them, warts and all, and 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 recognize that the fathers of the church were. Some of them were fighting heresy, uh, tooth and nail. Some of them, you know, at the Council of Nicaea. There were 318 bishops, and some of them were losing limbs. They their eyes were gouged out. They did some of them didn't have arms because the the persecution had just stopped with Constantine. Sure. And again, um, and these guys did pretty good considering the the days in which they lived. And I and I want to point out to folks too. I don't think what you're doing when you're kind of quoting these historical figures, uh, suggesting that hey, it looks like they were teaching something very much what the reformers were saying. I don't right. think you're trying to baptize the early church fathers so as to make them look like you know protestant yeah. reformers but i yeah. think what you're what you're doing i think is is pointing to elements in their teaching that's very consistent with what the reformers yes. were saying and so it's an illegitimate objection to say that the reformers were just making this up i think that's an important that's right thing to keep in mind that's right that's right and and they weren't and they actually admitted that they said look they quoted augustine extensively right. and they quoted the early father before augustine uh, the pre the pre Nicene fathers. So the best way to figure this out is, you know, read the institutes, read right. Luther's uh, works, and what you'll find surprisingly is that uh, a lot of what Augustine said. You see, the issue here, Eli, is not grace is not necessary. The Roman Church will tell you it's it's in the official Catechism of the Church that no one can be saved without grace. The Church will tell you that God's grace is essential for salvation. But here's the question. Is it sufficient in and of itself? Right. In other words, is it grace alone or is it grace plus fill in the blank? So the Roman church will not say grace alone. It will say we're saved by grace, but not grace alone. That mm. is really important. That right. we bear very, that in mind. very good. Uh, Plantinga has another question here. Church tradition can be too layered, but it does seem to have importance. Do you think Protestants have abandoned too much that is worthwhile there? I think that's a good question. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that I think that what is happening now, I think, in Protestant circles is is they're beginning to rediscover a lot of the uh, the Eastern Fathers, uh, people like Gregory of Nyssa and Gregory of Nazianzus and Basil the Great. Uh, Basil, for example, was a huge defender of Trinitarian theology. I think he's underestimated because 
Basil took on the pneumatikoi. The pneumatikoi were those who denied the deity and person of the Holy Spirit. And Basil wrote some great works against them. And Basil is the same one who said that, uh, let the scriptures be our judge and whatever is true, uh, if it is confirmed by scripture, then let truth, let the scriptures be the judge. Well, wow, that sounds a lot like sola scriptura. Mm -hmm. So I think Basil great, even this doctrine that some of these early Eastern fathers taught, it's called in Greek theosis. Uh, and theosis is sometimes confused with an idea of deification. That's not what it means. So Athanasius and Irenaeus believed in theosis. Theosis meant that we would be absorbed, that in the end, in glory, in glorification, we would be absorbed into the life of the triune God. There's nothing unbiblical about that because God will be all in all and that we will be consumed with God's presence and holiness. I mean, Augustine called it the beatific vision. So there's a lot to be learned uh, by the early fathers. Uh, you know, Basil had some really interesting views that when you baptize, you have to face Jerusalem and you, and you, and you got to go head first. So forget about, you know, the Baptist way of putting the back in, in the water first. His idea was you dunk them in head first facing Jerusalem. And I think it was like nine times. So again, it, you know, there's these little things that you find in the fathers that are very interesting. But in terms of orthodoxy, defending the faith. Uh, these guys are giants. We are standing on their shoulders. Mm, very good. Very good. Yeah. Uh, the sire asks a question. Why couldn't 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17 be referring to material sufficiency? Material sufficiency. By material sufficiency, are they referring to scripture or? Oh, well, 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17, I suppose it would be that passage of all scripture being yeah. God breathed. Yeah. And, and I think I think it is referring to sufficiency i think it's all sufficient i mean if you read it uh paul says all scripture is theanustos mm -hmm. it's god breathed and that idea of god breathing out right you know the word inspiration is not a good translation for that because okay. inspiration is the opposite of of theanustos inspiration in latin means to breathe in just you know mm -hmm. inspirited mean to inhale right but theanustos is exhalation okay so when we're talking right eli when we're talking we're not inhaling we're exhaling when we speak, right? We've got to force air out of our lungs. Now you try to talk while you're inhaling, you're gonna sound like Minnie Mouse or Mickey Mouse or something like that. Okay. The idea oh, is okay. that, the, the, the idea is when Jesus told Satan, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The idea right. is this exhaling. And this is only found in scripture. None of the fathers claim to be, never did the fathers say my writings are Theonostos, ever. And if you read verse 17, I think it's pretty simple. It's that it is it is it is uh, profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, uh, so that the man of God may be uh, thoroughly furnished. And in verse 15, he tells Timothy, he says, you know, the scriptures that are the Holy Scriptures that are able to make you wise unto salvation. Mm -hmm. Notice Paul doesn't say the Holy Scriptures and this apostolic tradition that we've passed on. Sure. He says the scriptures are able to make you wise. Mm. And because they're the honest us. All right. Very good. Very good. Uh, here's another uh, question here. Uh, Jesus Garcia uh, asks, is original sin ever taught before Augustine or did he bring this teaching into the church? Okay. Great, great question. Um, Augustine did definitely emphasize original sin, just like Calvin emphasized predestination and the decrees of God and so forth and the election. Um, there are hints of original sin in some of the early fathers. In fact, 
you could find uh, hints of original sin in Jewish writings before the time of Christ. And so um, in, in books like Fourth Ezra, there's a book in the Pseudepigrapha called the Fourth Book of Ezra, where it actually mentions Adam as the one who has plummeted all of creation, all of the world into, into sin and rebelling against God. And so there's clearly a, an idea of, of Adam being the originator of sin by identification with his progeny. Mm. And, and there is some talk about it in the, in the early fathers. Some of them will talk about original guilt and so forth. But even in the Hebrew Bible, you don't even have to look to the, to the New Testament. You go in the Hebrew Bible and it's very clear that, you know, David says in Psalm 51, in, he says, in sin was I conceived and my mother, my mother brought me forth in iniquity. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute. So you're sinful from conception. Yeah, well, that sounds very much like original sin. Sure. Uh, and the scripture speaks about those who from the womb are, they, 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 they have lying tongues right from the moment they, they pop out of the womb. And so, so the idea here, this all have sinned and come short of God's glory and, and this association with sin at conception, I think these are the developments of this idea that we call original sin. Hmm. Uh, now, the Eastern Church doesn't like this. They think Augustine made this whole thing up. But I think you can't read Romans 5 okay. without recognizing two federal heads, Christ and Adam. That's in right. Adam, you die. In Christ, you live. That's right. So if, you, if you're in Adam one, you die. If you're in Adam two, you live. Okay. All right. Very good. We're almost, we're almost done. You're doing great. And I appreciate it. <laughs> okay. Uh, how are you doing? You're okay. Oh, great. Yeah. I love the, the questions are awesome. All right. Good. So we got a, I got a couple more and then we'll wrap things up here. A uh, plant bulldog strikes again. I have many Catholic friends who point out that God ordained a church, not a book. What are your thoughts? Yeah. My Mormon friends tell me the same thing. Uh, <laughs> it, exactly the same thing that God ordained a, a, a latter day church. Uh, by a prophet that he chose, and that book was uh, the Book of Mormon. Um, well, uh, what what does the scripture say? Well, of course, God ordained His church. Uh, God, oh, God ordained His people. But but when Roman Catholics speak of a church, what they're thinking of is they're thinking of this building in Rome in the Vatican, Vatican City. They're thinking of this huge St. Peter's Basilica, and that's the church that he started. We need to define our terms. What do we mean by church? Well, the word church, you know, it comes into the English language through the through the Scots, the Scots refer to church as Kirk. Kirk, yeah. You've heard of the word Kirk, like Captain Kirk in Star Trek. Uh, mm-hmm. The word Kirk is Scottish for uh, for church, and then in, in in German it comes as well as Kirch. And uh, but the word, I think your is your background Spanish, Eli. I'm Puerto Rican. Okay, so Spanish speaking, right? Okay, so you know the word Iglesia, right? Iglesia, iglesia yeah. in Portuguese it's Igreja. Uh, so Iglesia in Spanish. Is, is is a takeover of the Greek ecclesia, right? And so ecclesia means an assembly. So God has ordained a people. He hasn't ordained a three-dimensional building in Rome somewhere. He has ordained a people, and that people he has ordained by calling them to himself, by, predestin- by predestinating them in love from the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1-4, in Christ. And so... Uh, and so whenever you say he ordained a church, in the Roman mind, it's this structure with the Pope on top and the cardinals and bishops and priests. No, the church is the people of God. That's what he's ordained. Okay. And to his people, he's given his word to communicate his laws. Very good. Very good. I got someone put in a Puerto Rican flag emoji. People get excited. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, wait, 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 I'm Puerto Rican. Oh, you're the cool Spanish. What does that even mean? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I'll take it, though. Okay. Um, Here's a big question, but you can answer it as succinctly as possible, okay? Here's the question. 
what are your thoughts on Eastern Orthodoxy? I mean, a lot of these discussions, especially because the Protestant Reformation is something that happened in the West and all of the historical events that led up to that point are really focused on the West. What are your thoughts, just very succinctly, on Eastern Orthodoxy? Yes. Where, where um, within Orthodoxy will, I mean, do they disagree with all of the solas or what's going on there? Yeah, uh, yes. So, so you got to think of church history again, 1050, 1054, there's the Great Schism. So the, the West and the East break up and uh, the Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, Greek, Russian, Ukrainian, and so forth. The Greek Orthodox Church rejects all the solas, just like the Roman Catholic Church. Okay. Uh, but they're not. Don't think of them as the the Eastern uh, uh, Roman Catholic Church. Even though there are some Eastern churches in union with Rome, they're called Uniate. Uh, okay. But the Eastern Orthodox Church denies the solas. Okay. Uh, the the Eastern Orthodox Church uh, also denies Roman Catholic doctrines. They deny the Immaculate Conception. They also deny the Assumption of Mary, and they also deny original sin. And the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, believes that obviously surprise surprise they're the true church where have we heard that before okay. and they believe that uh they are the church that goes right back to the apostles again no surprise there they they don't have so much a sacramental theology they they hold to what's called the mysteries okay. so the orthodox church is very steeped in tradition they don't like change they're very ancient in that respect but they don't believe in salvation by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. They believe in synergism. They believe in cooperation with uh, God's grace, no different than Rome. And they both believe in sacred tradition and the Bible. So it's not sola scriptura. Okay. So, so in many respects, it's very much like the Roman church. All right. Okay, good. And if you guys are, are interested in Eastern Orthodoxy, I'm actually going to be interviewing uh, Hank Hanegraaff um, on Tuesday. So we'll get into a, a little bit of that. Those of you who might be excited about that, no, we're not debating. Um, I'm actually um, currently looking into Eastern Orthodoxy, not to convert. I'm very convinced uh, uh, Protestant uh, Christian, um, but definitely um, I'm always interested in what people believe. And um, I think that um, Hank and I could have a, a really good discussion there. So um, if you guys are interested in that topic, uh, stay tuned for that. That's uh, next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Okay. All right. Um, I think there is one more question and then we're done. Uh, no, what? That was the last one. Never mind. Oh, well, here. Okay. This sounds like a throwaway question, but it's not. There was a gentleman here that was having difficulty following your answers because people have to understand something. The questions that are being asked require, require, background knowledge in church history, theology, and things like that. So some people might be impatient with a prolonged answer, but you can't just assume that everyone else knows all that background information. So I appreciate very much that you kind of break out, you break down the issues. So, but here's what, what, uh, <laughs> okay, where, where do I have it in front of me here? Okay. So Mr. C asks, can everything that was just said, <laughs> <laughs> into two or three short sentences so let's take the five solas if if we were having a cup of coffee and i'm like i have three minutes but i heard that you're a, a christian and you're a protestant christian I, what's all this deal with the five solas how would you summarize that for me in uh, yeah a couple of seconds if it's possible yeah i would say we are saved by faith alone without works by grace alone through jesus christ alone and his perfect work on calvary on the authority of scripture alone to the end that it will be for the glory of God alone. And so that's how I would summarize it, that it is a work of God 
and that it is uniquely a work of God. There's nothing you can do about it. It's not earned. And there's a perfect savior who's procured a perfect redemption. And the authority for this truth that I'm telling you is the scriptures alone. And in the end, whether you become a believer or not, whether you like it or not, in the end, God's gonna be glorified. He will be glorified in the election of his people to the praise of his mercy and grace, and he will be glorified in the execution of his justice against the wicked. So either way, God gets glorified. Why didn't you just say that at the beginning? We could have had a <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, li I like when you yeah. go into the details. Hey, listen, this was excellent. This was very informative. Um, I tell people this all the time. I listen to my own uh, my own show. I like to to read up and 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 rehear what what people have to say when they're guests and they have really good things to say. So yeah, thank you so much for my uh, pleasure, Aaron. Guys, I hope you guys share this video with Reformation Day coming up on October thirty first. Uh, this is a very very important topic, and unfortunately, um, Christians tend to be detached from their history, and I'm guilty of this too. I'm one of those Christians who I'm very familiar with with church history when it comes to from here to the Reformation. And then yeah. it kind of gets cloudy when it comes to the early yeah. church. And that's something that I, as, a, as an apologist myself and as a debater, I need to make sure that I am up on those areas. And so we all have our weaknesses. So I think Dr. Tony Costa did a great job in reminding us the importance of knowing church history and the importance of the five solas of the Reformation. So Dr. Tony Costa, thank you so much for joining me. And I would love to have you back to talk about some other area of your expertise, maybe the cults yeah. or um, sure. even, even Eastern Orthodoxy. Maybe we could do a sure. follow-up show to uh, sure. when I have Hank on. I think that'd be great. Would love to. Would love to. Thank you so much. Will you stay on uh, for just a few moments here? Thank you so much, guys, for sending, sending in your questions. Um, if you have any personal questions for me that you'd like me to address, you could email me at revealedapologetics at gmail.com. And I'll respond to you there. If you want to support uh, Revealed Apologetics, you can do that through sending super chats or private message me if you are um, desiring to uh, support this ministry. Well, thank you so much. And uh, that's it for tonight. Uh, take care and God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com.